0: Welcome to the World of Intelligence, a podcast for you to discover the latest analysis of global military and security trends within the open source defense intelligence community, direct from the experts at the JANES Intelligence Unit. Each week, we bring together a thought leader from the Intel community to gain in depth knowledge and insight into the world of intelligence. Now, onto the episode with your host, Mark Wilson.
1: Welcome to the latest edition of Jane's World of Intelligence podcast. Now, today we're joined by Peter Martin, a defense and intelligence reporter at Bloomberg. Peter's also the author of a new book called China's Civilian Army The Making of Wolf Warrior Diplomacy. Peter, welcome to the pod.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Great to have you on board. So um perhaps we could begin then. Maybe if you could tell us a little bit about your background perhaps and how you came to be reporting on defensive intelligence, really.
0: Yeah, so so at the moment I work for Bloomberg News based out of Washington and I report on the Pentagon and some some of the world of intelligence as well here. But before that I was based in Beijing as a correspondent for Bloomberg, where I wrote about Chinese politics and foreign policy, you know, with out in Xinjiang, reporting on China's security state there, and on the North Korean border and other places, but I especially writing about the deteriorating relationship with between the U.S. and China.
1: Very very interesting times. Now, your book, which of course we're going to get onto and discuss in in this podcast, it's all about Chinese diplomacy, and you know I'd say probably it's both the history of Chinese diplomacy, but of course. It also probably provides a window into the present and also maybe perhaps the future of Chinese diplomacy, too. So I wonder if you, you know, before we go into that book, I wonder if you could share with us why you came to write the book in the first place.
0: Yeah, so I'd lived in Beijing on and off since 2008. But when I went back in 2017 as a reporter with Bloomberg, I was really struck by how much economic and and military progress the country had made. You know, Xi Jinping was rolling out this incredibly ambitious Belt and Road Initiative. China was Mm -hmm. militarizing its artificial islands in the South China Sea. And it seemed to have this incredible opportunity to kind of assert its global leadership, as then President Donald Trump was, you know, insulting US allies left, right and center and, and, and uh, withdrawing from international institutions and all of those kinds of things, and yet somehow China just didn't seem to be able to grasp that opportunity. As strong as it was becoming militarily and economically, and as good as it was becoming at using inducements and and sometimes threats to get its way, it seemed to be really bad at persuading others. And I, you know, I started to think about that. You know, why does this superpower have? such a gaping hole at the, the center of its capabilities. And as I thought more about that question, Chinese diplomats kind of jumped out to me as like a microcosm of China's broader struggle to communicate. And I started looking into, you know, some of the strengths and weaknesses and and and, and what the, the history and structure of China's diplomatic corps might tell us about that broader struggle that China has. To make its case to the outside world.
1: Now, the term that is in the title of your book um, that describes Chinese diplomacy as so-called "wolf warrior" diplomacy. Just define that term for us a little bit. You know what what is "wolf warrior" diplomacy? Uh, What do you see are the objectives of Wolf Warrior Diplomacy and, you know, why do you think it's referred to as such in the first place? It's
0: a title that's really come to be associated with a new brand of much more brash and assertive Chinese diplomacy that's emerged, I mean, slowly over the last decade, but especially in the last couple of years under Xi Jinping and, you know, particularly during the coronavirus pandemic where Chinese diplomats have, you know, at times uh, spread conspiracy theories about the origins of the the COVID virus. They have stormed out of international meetings and told foreign counterparts to, to shut up and gotten into Twitter spats with all kinds of eminent people, um, including uh, members of Bolsonaro's family in Brazil, former National Security Advisor Susan Rice, and then, you know, with particular virulence against uh, former U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. And so that kind of new diplomacy uh, for a lot of people came to kind of symbolize, like, China's, um, you know, the, the global role that it was assuming, but but actually, you know, as I argue in the book, if you if you look into it, these kinds of behaviour have really really deep roots.
1: So to say a little bit more about the, those roots. Then is it is wolf warrior diplomacy kind of a, a reaction maybe to something in China's past? Would you say?
0: Well, so I, I the way I think of it is that um, China kind of has two diplomatic traditions since uh, the founding of the. The communist state in 1949. So uh, when the country was first established, it basically had no diplomats, you know, a small band of people who had followed China's first foreign minister, Zhou Enlai, during the revolutionary years, plus a bunch of peasant revolutionaries and fresh graduates from university. And Zhou uh, had to mold this group into China's diplomatic corps, and the way he did that was to come up with this ethos and this idea that Chinese diplomats would act like the People's Liberation Army in civilian clothing. So what he meant by that was they would, you know, show incredible discipline toward the Communist Party. They would follow instructions directly. They would often move around in pairs to make sure that no information was leaked and that there was always somewhere else, someone else to keep tabs on each member of the corps. And, uh, you know, they would also display this fighting spirit whenever China's interests were challenged. And so, you know, right from the beginning in the 50s, there were these displays of just incredible sort of what we would now call wolf warrior tactics. You know, I think of uh, an example in in 1950, uh, Wu Xiuquan, who was a veteran revolutionary, the guy had kind of a bullet scar mark on his Cheek and um okay, you know he went he went to the United Nations and delivered this two hour kind of finger wagging head moving speech where he um you know he kind of made today's wolf warriors look like wimps and actually. <laughs> In the Cultural Revolution in the 1960s, there were even images of Chinese diplomats literally wielding axes at protesters in, in London outside the embassy. And so these kinds of behaviors have a long, long past in China but and, and lots of precedent. But I think also there's this this alternate tradition where China charms the world and seeks to persuade others, which we also saw later on in the nineteen fifties, and then with great success after the Tiananmen massacre and in the lead up to the two thousand eight Olympics.
1: I mean, just listening to you there, that that was a theme that for me also you know really stood out in your book that that type of you know that historical connection it seemed between. On the one hand the chinese military and on the other hand the diplomatic corps like you said like right from the beginning there was this idea that you know diplomats they've got to you know be soldiers in 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 some sense of the word like right? show absolute obedience to the central leadership never ever act upon your own authority on your own initiative in any way or anything like that i mean that's that's to me is the way you explained it was was the roots of, of that diplomacy but does that do you think that still has echoes in in today's chinese diplomacy what do you see in terms of the contemporary situation um in that respect
0: yeah it's a it's a really interesting question so i think you know early on in the prc's history there were kind of two strands so there was this martial uh, militaristic ethos that joe tried to sort of imbibe in the Chinese diplomatic corps, which I I mentioned earlier on. And the most important part of that, you know, is as you know, the People's Liberation Army is not a state army, it's a party army. It reports Mm -hmm. to the Communist Party of China. And that... Overriding loyalty to to following the party's direction is something that was was true of China's diplomatic corps in 1949, and it's true of China now under Xi Jinping. And that's something that really hasn't changed. There's a great deal of continuity there. And and so too, you know, there's this fighting spirit has continued. As I said, there have been periods of charm offensives, and there have been periods of. Of slightly more strident diplomacy but throughout that this this kind of fighting spirit has endured and, and chinese diplomats when they speak in chinese to chinese audiences will still use this metaphor of the diplomatic corps being uh, the people's liberation army in civilian clothing i think what what has changed though is the kind of personnel links between the military and the diplomatic corps so early on almost all of China's first ambassadors overseas were were generals, were uh, PLA veterans. And, you know, the the reason for that was that they were considered to have the best political loyalty. And, you know, Mao Mao Zedong actually said at one point, ambassador generals are good because they won't defect. And, (laughs) um, you know, yeah they were very, very explicit about it. And as time went on, that group, of, of, of actual military veterans were, were kind of phased out and replaced with people who had grown up in the foreign ministry, spoke foreign languages, understood the niceties of diplomatic protocol, and all of those kinds of things. But at the outset, that wasn't the main goal. The main goal was these guys have got to be, uh, you know, have, to, have got to have the right degree of political loyalty. To serve the Communist Party, and so you know that's changed over time. China still will recruit military veterans to its its diplomatic service in kind of in the same way that military veterans are are kind of welcomed into the U.S. State Department, and there are particular programs to help them adapt to that side of civilian life. But on the on the personnel side, there really is quite a lot of difference between now and uh, and forty nine, if that
1: makes sense. Yeah. Now, tell us a little bit about how you went about researching this book. Partly for this book, you're looking at the here and the now, of course, of Chinese diplomacy and assume for that that you've at least partly relied upon your journalistic sources in that respect. But of course, as you've said, this is a book that that does look back also into the history of Chinese diplomacy as well. So how did you go about... You're trying to find a window into that past uh, in order to, I guess, try and understand the here and now and actually then place that into context for the reader? Yeah, so I, my,
0: my main source base for the book was this this group of about 100 plus memoirs written by former Chinese diplomats, some of them very senior, you know, former foreign ministers, uh, and some of them very junior, kind of, you know, there was a a, a cultural attache to China's embassy to New Zealand, for example, wrote a book. and they're they're published by small uh, regional publishing houses uh, that off, they're not particularly well edited and 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 frankly, they're pretty dull books, but they they sort of shed light on the human side of Chinese diplomacy. You know what is it like? To be a diplomat in a country Mm -hmm. where people are suspicious of your political system or your economic system or where you fear that there are challenges all around and and forces that seek to overthrow your government and to me that ability to get inside the heads of these people who are trying to grapple with you know on the one hand a quite closed and, and paranoid political system at home and then an outside world that had expectations of greater openness and transparency. Those kinds of individual journeys, I think, taught me quite a lot about not just Chinese diplomacy, but what it what it feels like to take part in the, the political system there.
1: Now, last year, I saw a report in Chinese state media outlet, The Global Times, and, and it was talking about a, an artist, a Chinese artist. And the report described this artist as a, a wolf warrior artist and that kind of got me thinking at the time you know is wolf warrior diplomacy then is it limited just to chinese diplomats or actually how are we seeing it applied to people in other lines of work now obviously i wonder if you could kind of share your own experiences really from what you've seen in the course of your research is it just a, a diplomatic thing or is it applied to other sectors as well within china what do you think about that Well, you know, I think that in some
0: ways, uh, Wolf Warrior Diplomacy is a reflection of a a deeper shift that's taken place in China, where the Communist Party in the wake of the Tiananmen Massacre relied a lot on on nationalist propaganda and nationalist messaging to underscore its own legitimacy. And, you know, there was already, of course, a great deal of of national pride and, and patriotism in China. But that was kind of, Politicised in the nineties, and and there was an emphasis on on the way that China had been humiliated by by foreign powers, and in the past, and 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 that was kind of directed towards like you know we need to break free from the grip of U.S. hegemony and promote mm-hmm. a multipolar world and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, that drive was very very successful and helped to breed a new group of very nationalist youth who, you know, took to the internet and sometimes criticised the government and especially the foreign ministry for being too soft. You know, there are stories of Chinese diplomats being sent calcium tablets in the mail in the 2000s because, you know, the, the implication was that their backbones were too weak and so maybe they needed some some extra calcium to help them out. <laughs> okay. um, and I think that, you know, in the, in the 90s and the 2000s, that kind of nationalism kind of sat outside the party state and was sometimes almost almost held up in opposition to the way that the government was trying to win over international opinion. And I think what's happened under Xi Jinping is that that kind of nationalism has has really gone mainstream and has become, in some ways, the official voice of the Chinese government. And so I think of an institution like The Global Times, this, this nationalist tabloid. And in 2010, 2011 its voice was very different to that of the Chinese foreign ministry. It was much more assertive, much more belligerent and nationalistic. And the the foreign ministry was far more uh, accommodating in comparison. And and now, on your average day, it's pretty hard to find light between the voice of the Global Times and, Mm. um, and the foreign ministry. And so I guess that's a that's a long-winded way of saying like these tactics are being played around with in Chinese state media, in the Chinese diplomatic apparatus. and, And, and they're kind of a reflection of this bigger shift and this way that nationalism has gone mainstream
1: now i wonder if for for a second we could try and step into the mind let's say of a chinese wolf warrior diplomat today now you've probably met a few in 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 your own work down the years and you know i wonder if you could share with us your view on you know what it is actually like to be one of these wolf warrior diplomats i mean is it is it a label that you think these individuals are attracted to in some way or by the same token is it a label that maybe they don't like maybe they feel burdened with it in some way
0: yeah i mean i would i would say on the whole um most chinese diplomats don't like the label and and to them it feels like you know they are being criticized for their the way that they run their political system and the way that their economic and industrial policy is conducted and they are, you know, in, from their perspective, they are seeking to develop their country in the same way that Western economies were able to develop, and, and yet somehow they're being criticized for it. And so I think to a lot of them, the wolf warrior label kind of feels like, um, you know, actually Vice Foreign Minister Lo Chung said this. this is he, called, he said it was a discourse trap aimed to stop China from fighting back. And so, you know, one of the things that's really um, easy to overlook when you kind of see this behavior is, you know, from the outside, it does look incredibly aggressive and belligerent, but from, on the individual level, a lot of this stems from a sense of insecurity, you know, an insecurity about China's place in the world, but also insecurity on the part of individuals. You know, Chinese diplomats at the moment face a political system where Xi Jinping has consolidated power to a degree unprecedented in recent decades. He's abolished presidential term limits. He's introduced a sweeping anti-corruption campaign that has punished 1.5 million officials. And he's experimenting with re-education camps to subdue Xinjiang, among among many, many other things. And if you are a Chinese diplomat in this system, and you are aware of the history of the Chinese diplomatic corps that has been through numerous purges in the past, you know, in the Cultural Revolution, junior chinese diplomats beat up ambassadors chinese ambassadors until they they coughed up blood uh, they locked them in cellars they publicly humiliated them made them clean toilets you know how high the stakes can be when you get on the wrong side of chinese politics and so sometimes the safest option for you on an individual level is just to act tough especially if that's what you think xi jinping wants and every you know every indication is that She likes that tough approach and will reward it.
1: Now, a key feature of diplomacy these days, not just Chinese diplomacy, um, but across the board, I guess, is is the online space, isn't it? Particularly, you know, social media platforms, etc. It strikes me that, that wolf warrior diplomacy, you know, it's got to have an online dimension to, and I know you, you talk a little bit about that in, in your book as well. Can you give us an insight really into, into how you think these wolf warrior di- diplomats use social media platforms to try and project China's image to the rest of the world? I mean, are there elements of misinformation or disinformation uh, being thrown in, into the mix here as well when we're talking about the online element of, of wolf warrior diplomacy?
0: Yeah, to me, I mean, it's a great question. And I sort of think of the online piece as the, the most experimental aspect of Wolf Warrior diplomacy. And in some ways, the part that is most out of keeping with the rest of Xi Jinping's foreign policy and domestic agenda. You know, Xi's focus for the Chinese bureaucracy has very much been on getting everyone on the same page. Everyone sings from the same hymn sheet follows directions set by the party center and and there, there really is that kind of top-down approach and in in some cases you know I think that the the presence on Twitter which is really where a lot of the most um, controversial incidents have have taken place um some of that is ad libbed you know it's they're, they're obeying orders in the sense that she wants a tougher tone and they're reflecting that. But my understanding from conducting interviews is that a lot of the most controversial incidents, including foreign ministry spokesman Zhao Jin's tweet about um, the origins of COVID-19 and this idea that maybe the U.S. Army started the pandemic in, in Wuhan, that was not officially sanctioned. That was something that, that he, an action that he took of his own initiative and, and clearly had very, very big uh, implications for foreign policy. And so I do wonder actually, you know, Xi Jinping recently delivered some remarks at a Politburo study session where he talked about the need for China to project a more lovable image to the outside world. And, and I do wonder if we may start to see some of that Twitter messaging, like gaining a little bit more consistency at least. I think the tough tone will stay, but but it does seem to be at odds with the way that Xi Jinping kind of likes to assert control over the bureaucracy to have these people out there ad libbing. Having said that. A Chinese diplomat, I can't remember if it was yesterday or the day before, tweeted an image of a middle finger held up at China's enemies, and so uh, <laughs> okay. maybe maybe, um, maybe not that much will change after all. But but it does strike me as a bit
1: of a puzzle. Sticking with the online element of this um, wolf warrior diplomacy, what's your sense of the extent to which? wolf-worried diplomats are part of broader pro-China messaging online. I mean, part of the reason for asking you this question is that I read about the so-called um, 50 Cent Army, you know, this reported group of, of state-backed commentators, if you believe some reports that they they're kind of paid for their activities. And they're basically, they're out there, they're online, they're disseminating pro-China Narratives on Western platforms, on, on Chinese uh, platforms as well. Now, my question is Do you think Wolf Warrior diplomats actually coordinate with individuals like that? It's, you know, in people who may be part of this so called 50 Cent army. Do you think that there's coordination in any way? Because looking from the outside, right, it seems that those two groups I mentioned there, they have kind of shared aims, right? They're both interested in pushing pro-China narratives maybe they've got their own reasons for doing it but they both seem to share that aim
0: yeah i mean so what i'd say is
1: it's, it's important when we, we analyze like the way that, that
0: any type of policy happens in china to remember just how stovepipe the system is so it's actually very very difficult for um someone in the foreign ministry at a junior or even mid-level to have a conversation with someone in the in the military or in the Ministry of Propaganda, because all of those different entities have reporting lines that go up towards the government, the right. central government, and then ultimately towards the, the Communist Party and its leadership, and which um, are deliberately there in order for the party to uh, assert control over the bureaucracy, just in the the same way as the Soviet Union had a kind of stovepipe system like that. And so what I think is more likely than a kind of granular tactical coordination is that all of these groups have looked at the speeches of Xi Jinping and other top leaders where they talk about the need for China to tell its story better to the outside world. For China to win, you know, this, they use language about winning the struggle for international discourse power. You know, they they recognise yeah. that even when the U.S. government is very unpopular, Hollywood and the U.S. media and cable news uh, is able to set the agenda and, and 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 really define the ways in which public discourse takes place in a way that China is is. Really not capable of doing at the moment, and they desperately want to find a way for China to do that. And so, I think that like those kind of online nationalists and their coordination with the state is one piece of that. I think Wolf Warrior diplomats online is um, is another piece of that. And so, it's it's better, I think, to kind of think of all of these groups working towards the will of the Party Center rather than thinking of them as as coordinating on their own terms. If that makes sense,
1: it does. It does. I wonder if you could get your thoughts, and finally, Peter, on on the future. To me, from reading your book and from seeing the behaviour of some of these so-called wolf warrior uh, diplomats online, the perception they give off, they want to portray, you know, they're certainly very aggressive, certainly very combative in nature, as the name, you know, wolf warrior would, would suggest. Do you see that? changing in any way in in the future do you see maybe a scenario where wolf warrior diplomacy could soften perhaps in the future or by the same token perhaps it might become even more combative
0: yeah so i mean i think one of the things that's really important to remember is that since 1949 the communist party has had this incredible ability to recalibrate both its its domestic and its foreign policies when it's faced challenges so, you know, no one could have imagined when China was emerging diplomatically isolated, you know, politically in chaos at home after the Cultural Revolution, during, during the Cultural Revolution, that, uh, that China would invite Henry Kissinger and then Richard Nixon to Beijing and help to change the, the course of the Cold War in that way. And, you know, after 1989, again, you know, China was an international pariah, it had uh, destroyed lots of the goodwill that had spent decades cultivating. And yet again, its leaders were, were capable of changing course and initiating this incredibly successful multi-decade charm offensive. So I think it's always important to remember that China has, has in the past been able to pivot out of situations which seemed a lot more dire in terms of its international reputation than, uh, than the situation it faces today. What I think is surprising to a lot of China watchers is that that kind of pivot hasn't happened yet under Xi. You know, we, we've we had now mm, a decade of, of what was originally called the new assertiveness under Chinese foreign policy. I guess it's not so new anymore. And there's plenty of evidence from polling uh, of Western societies, from the you know the hostility that China now faces in India among the population and the political elite, to the the way that it's you know its investment deal with Europe it seems to have run adrift after China imposed sanctions on European lawmakers and think tanks. And there's, there's so much evidence now that China's approach is creating a backlash that it really is starting to become puzzling that there hasn't been a recalibration but I I guess you know history shows us that the party state is often is often thinking of things while uh uh, one way while propaganda points another and so we'll have to wait and see to see if that recalibration happens
1: yeah wait wait and see exactly well thanks very much for joining us peter it's been an absolutely fascinating conversation Excellent book as well. So if anyone, any, any of our listeners out there, um, I really recommend uh, Peter's book to you if you're interested in any element of Chinese diplomacy or China for that matter. So Peter, I assume that if listeners want to find your book, uh, it's available in all the usual places, is it?
0: Yeah, that's right. So it launched in the US on uh, June the 10th and uh, is out on Kindle uh, in many places already. And hard copies, I think, will be available internationally, including the UK, from August the 2nd.
1: Fantastic. Thanks, Peter.
0: Cheers. Thanks for joining us this week on The World of Intelligence. Make sure to visit our website, janes.com slash podcast, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. If you liked this show, you might want to also check out our weekly webinars available at janes.com webinar, covering a variety of topics from electronic warfare simulation to airborne signal intelligence and much more.
1: Jane's Capella interconnects millions of a short data points across Jane's foundational intelligence with the ability to
0: integrate and contextualize multiple sources, delivering the single source of truth. Jane's Capella increases certainty and accelerates decision making for everyone in your organization. Find out more at jane's.com forward slash Capella.